You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. How many of you had a New Year's resolution? Really? Be honest. Come on, let's be honest with each other here. This is the, we're in the house of God. How many of you had a New Year's resolution? Okay, that's interesting, and I have a theory about that. Um, it may be right or wrong. How many of you, a couple of people who had a New Year's resolution, have, are still sticking to your New Year's resolution today, about a week and a half after the New Year? Okay, just once. That puts us at like 30%, okay? Um, for those of you uh, playing along at home or listening to this in cyberspace, not a lot of people raise their hands about, uh, um, about having a New Year's resolution, and of those who raise their hands, not a bunch, uh, not a lot, uh, said that they're still sticking to it. The phenomenon of New Year's resolutions is a really interesting phenomenon when you think about it. Because what it means is that there's a pretty pervasive and universal desire among people. Whether or not you made a New Year's resolution, my guess is you might have thought about it, or you knew people who made New Year's resolutions. It's pretty commonplace and pervasive. There's a desire among people to change things about themselves. They realize things in their lives that aren't going optimally, that aren't going as well as they would like them to. They're not succeeding as much as they want to. They're not as healthy as they like to be. They may not be as good of a, a spouse or a friend or a parent as they'd like to be. They may be struggling at work, struggling with other aspects of their lives. And so they commit once a year, a few times a year, to do something proactive to change their lives in positive ways. But as we know, because we know how pervasive and common New Year's resolutions are in our society, and many of us may have had them at some point in our lives, even if not this year, is that usually it doesn't take too long to fall off the wagon from fulfilling our New Year's resolutions. So why is it that we have such a profound desire to improve our lives and to change, and yet the follow-through is sometimes eludes us. Sometimes we're unable to break free of the obstacles and struggles that we have in our lives and that we'd like to change. What prevents us from breaking free of those things? Now, the classic example is, well, we're creatures of habit. So it's easy to adopt a new habit, and it's, a, well, actually rather, it's hard to adopt a new habit, and it's easy to fall back on old habits. But I actually think that that's not the deep answer, because there's a reason we formulate our habits in the first place, and that deeper reason is why it's so hard to break free. And I actually think that there are four major reasons why this is. And we'll take each of these in turn over the next four weeks. I think the reasons are cynicism, materialism, insecurity, and fear. Not necessarily in that order. Cynicism, materialism, insecurity, and fear. So let's talk for a minute about cynicism. That's the first one. Cynicism is essentially the lack of a belief that 
the thing in your life that you want to change, or you feel that needs to change, it's a lack of belief that it can change, that it can be changed, that we can transcend, that we can break free of the habits and the obstacles and the struggles that we wrestle with. So this pervades all aspects of our lives. We live, I think, in a very cynical age. Right? There is a reason why there, this is the era in which there is the most information available to people ever in the history of the human race. And yet, the voting rate among eligible adults continues to drop. Because it seems like the more we learn about what's going on in politics, the more we learn about the, uh, the structures that govern and, govern and influence our lives, the less of a belief we have that we are actually going to be able to impact a change in those structures by our vote. So it doesn't really matter. I can't make a difference, so I'm not going to cast a ballot. And it happens in our communities, in our institutions too. Right, where we feel like the way things have always been done makes current practice inevitable, or at least too difficult to effect a change, or we will take as faith that the thing that we tried to change a number of years ago and failed at doing will happen again if we try to change the same thing now, maybe even the same or in a different way. And this is so pervasive, so much so, that I had a button that was given to me, I didn't even make it, by an organization in the Philadelphia area um, called the Jewish Learning Venture. It was a button that said, because we've always done it that way, and had one of those, you know, no smoking signs around it. <laughs> because it's so pervasive in communities and synagogues and institutions to say, we've always done things that way, and therefore it's likely going to be the way we continue to do things. And any effort and attempt to change the status quo is likely to fail because we've already done it that way for so long, we don't want to change it, or because we don't know how to change it, or because we've already tried to change it and the try attempt to change failed, and so we have to move on. And it happens in our lives all the time. So I remember um, as, a, as a kid, um, I struggled a lot with math. I don't know if that was true of uh, those of you here, but I struggled a lot with math. And one of the reasons I discovered that I was struggling eventually, that I was struggling so hard with math and that I was really unable to improve my performance is that I had convinced myself that I wasn't a math person, that I wasn't capable of doing it, that I wasn't capable of analyzing the numbers and crunching the numbers, that I didn't, that I wasn't able, it wasn't in my wheelhouse, that I wasn't able to do it. All of that, I didn't believe in myself. All of that is cynicism, is despair, despondency, the lack of belief that what we need to change can be changed. We see that over and over again in this week's Torah portion. So first, the children of Israel are enslaved. We learn, if you do the math of it in the internal chronology of the Torah, that they are enslaved for a couple of hundred years. Genesis predicts that they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. The rabbis say it's, a, it's less than that, but it's still a couple of centuries. Why is it 
that there is no recording of a slave uprising in the 200 plus years of Israelite subjugation in Egypt. Why is it that when God encounters Moses, Moses says to God, I am not able to be the messenger that you want me to be. I'm not a person of speech. I'm not a person of leadership capabilities and convincing. He didn't believe in himself. He was cynical. He believed that the way he had been was inevitable. Inevitably the way things would always be. Why is it that when Moses eventually comes and tells the people of Israel that he wants to redeem them and begins to engage in the work of liberating them, the people of Israel rebel against Moses and say, you've just made our lives more difficult. Because in their minds, they believe that their current status and that their past failures to change their status made it inevitable what their status would be today. You want to sit with me? Oh, okay. That's cynicism. So it's telling then the symbol, the image that God uses to appear to Moses. So if you have your Kumash uh, handy, I invite you to open it up to page 327. 326. The beginning of chapter 3. Everybody there? 326, the beginning of chapter 3 of Exodus. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, Yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside to look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush. Let's just stop there. So the rabbis spend lots of time and ink discussing why God chooses to speak to Moses out of a burning bush. Why that symbol? Why that image? And there are a lot of really wonderful options uh, that are, that are uh, laid out by the rabbis. But here's one that I love. The whole notion that Moses says, look, there's a bush on fire, but it's not burning up. Why doesn't the bush burn up? Indicates that what Moses is alarmed about is that the normal course of nature what he had grown accustomed to happening in the past, because after all, that's what science is, we draw inferences from, the, from past behavior to predict what's going to happen in the present and in the future, and Moses is a shepherd of flocks in the desert, he sees these bushes all the time, he probably sees them on fire a lot because there's heat in the desert and bushes catch on fire, it's very dry, he sees it all the time. And so he sees this normal sight that he's seen over and over again behaving abnormally. And he says, why is it behaving abnormally? 
And that, I think, is precisely the reason that God chooses that symbol. Because what God is saying is what's often on the fine prints of our stock records and investment records, which is past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. Past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. So the bush that is aflame and not burning up is exactly that message. What you've experienced in the past is not inevitable. What's happened in your history doesn't have to be a part of your present or a part of your future. So long as you tie your hope to a God that can make unusual things happen. As long as you believe that the future is not dictated, not necessarily dictated by the past. So God appears to Moses out of a burning bush. And as if that's not enough, go on a little bit further. Look at page 329, verse 13. Moses said to God, When I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Vayomer Elohim El Moshe. God said to Moses, Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh. Vayomer Kotomar Libnei Israel Eheyeh Shlachani Alechem. God said to Moses, Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh. He continued, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, Eheyeh sent me to you. Now you'll notice in that English translation that they've deliberately not done what? Translated. That's a weird thing in an English translation. Part of the reason is, no one really knows exactly how to translate that phrase, Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh. It's translated in a lot of different places, a lot of different ways, in a lot of different places. It seems to me the most convincing interpretation of that phrase, ayah, asher, ayah, which in itself is a conjugation of God's proper name, which is yud and hey and vav and hey, which comes from the same Hebrew word root, which is hava, which means being or presence. Ayah, asher, ayah means I will be what I will be. Think about that. God, Moses says to God, who am I going to say to these Israelites who have been slaves for 200 plus years? Who am I going to say sent me? And God says, I will be what I will be sent you. Future directive, not present, not past, but future. Because past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. And to believe in God is a belief that your future can be different and better than your past. And as if that wasn't clear enough, he cons God consolidates it and says, this is what you should tell people. Don't even say to them, ayer, asher, ayer, because I mean, that's too confusing. Just say, ayer sent you, which means I will be. That is our text's answer to the question, of how do we break free of the cynicism that drives us to say to ourselves that how we lived in the past, how our communities were structured and organized and operated in the past, 
how our governmental systems were organized and operated in the past, that everything that happened in the past is inevitable for the present and the future. And what it's teaching us is that a belief in God is at its core a belief that what will be is not necessarily what was. So the teaching to us is that in order to break free of all that holds us back in our lives, the key is a belief, not necessarily in a God of, but in a reality of, we are continually in the process of becoming and being. And what we are tomorrow doesn't have to be what we are today. Yet we have the power today to engineer a future that is unbounded by our past. Shabbat Shalom.